it's something interesting and you have to learn about it in a very high level of detail. And I think any area that you're going to specialize in, you're really going to have to work hard at and you're really going to have to learn in detail. So it has to be something that engages you enough to make you willing to do that. I'd also sacrifice the opportunity of being best man to one of my friend's weddings because it was the same month I had this class. Are you searching for your ideal career, fed up of your daily grind, or simply want to hear some inspiring stories? Then you've come to the right place, because it's time to do a job you love. It's time to get work savvy. Welcome to episode seven of the Get Work Savvy podcast. I'm so excited that you're here, and I'm buzzing to say that we've got listeners all over the world on every continent. So thank you if you're listening in the UK US, Ireland, India, Egypt, Pakistan, Sweden, Australia, Spain, France, or anywhere in the world. I'm so glad that you're here and I hope that you're finding this valuable. So as you know, if you've listened before, this is the show that provides you with tips, tricks and advice on how you can find a job that you're passionate about rather than just suffering a daily grind. Now, if you're new, welcome. My name's Liam. I'm not only the host of this show, but I'm also lucky enough to have found a job that I'm really passionate about after spending about 10 years trying to figure out what on earth I'm going to do and how I can do something that I was literally born to do and not just something that I have to do to pay the bills. And I really want that for you too. So whether you're starting at the bottom of that career ladder and just thinking about what career interests you or whether you're feeling lost in what you're currently doing, then don't panic. You can find your calling even if you're not sure what it is yet. Now, this week's guest illustrates this perfectly. James, having gone to uni and then going on to build a successful career, realised that actually it wasn't what he wanted to do. And I think that so many of us fall into this trap. As you're going to hear, James didn't want to be that person who was in the retirement home telling all the youngsters to do what it is they enjoyed and not waste life and saying phrases like, if I had my time again. And he's absolutely right. We get one life. And I believe that because we spend so much time at work, why don't we actually do something that fulfills us rather than just making us hide under the duvet? Just consider the reality that Liam faced in episode three. Don't wait for a life changing event such as his to make you realise what it is that's really best for you. But I know some of you are going to say, Liam, I don't know what I want to do. I absolutely hear you. And I had that feeling too. It is okay to not know what it is that you want to do. It might be that you don't even know that job exists yet. And like I said, that's absolutely fine. The key is not to get too stressed out about it. Even if you look at other people and they've started to go down their own path and you think, wow, they're super successful. I wish I had that. Sometimes it just takes us a little bit of trying to find out what it is that we're actually interested in. So my suggestion to you is have a think about what you think you might enjoy doing. Try giving it a go or going down that route. And if it doesn't work out, then you can tick that off the list. Know that that's not for you and then move on to the next thing. And I'll let James explain that a lot better than I did to help you learn how he went through that whole process. But before we get into this week's episode, please don't forget that if you like the show, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a free minute or two, I'd really love it if you were able to rate and review the show. Now, not only will this help me to reach others, and I'm also happy for you to tell anyone in whatever method you like who you think the show might help, but it also gives you the chance to enter our launch competition if you send me a screenshot of your rating review to liam at getworksavvy.com, then you're in with a chance to win a 50 or one of two additional £25 Amazon vouchers. Entries for these three prizes need to be submitted before the 21st of the 12th, 2018. And winners are going to be announced on the Christmas Eve episode. 
So why not take that chance, spend two minutes helping the show and also potentially getting yourself an early Christmas present. Somebody's got to win it, so why not you? Enough of all that though, Liam, eh? Let's get into this week's episode and learn about what it is that James does and how he got work savvy. Remember that I'm going to summarise all the key takeaways at the end of the show and also add these into the show notes along with anything that James talks about. So whether you're running, doing the washing up or commuting to work, then don't pull over or don't stop what you're doing. It'll only be a click away in the episode show notes or by visiting getworksavvy.com forward slash episode seven. So sit back or not if you're running and enjoy the show. So hi to James and welcome to the Get Work Savvy podcast. Could you just introduce yourself to the audience and give them a little bit of a, a background about what it is that you do? Yeah, so uh, my name is James and I've recently qualified as a commercial pilot. I have also recently received an offer from a fairly well-known European low-cost airline and I'll be starting my training with them in July. Absolutely fantastic. I bet you're super excited to get that training done and get it under your belt to get your wings in the sky. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the training itself is fairly full on. And after the training, you never quite know when you're going to get a job offer because the market has quite pronounced peaks and troughs. So I've been quite fortunate to get the offer that I have done quite recently. I do believe there was another low budget airline went out of business as well. So I suppose that flooded the market a little bit with with potential competition for yourself. Exactly. Yeah, there's been a couple of fairly significant airlines that have gone under in the last year. And what that's done is flooded the market with quite experienced airline pilots with a significant number of hours under their belt. Now, they're, as you can imagine, quite a bit more attractive to airlines that necessarily might not want to invest in the initial training that they might have to with low hours pilots such as myself. Makes it even more of an achievement. So absolute congratulations, first off. Well done, sir. If I could ask you just to take people through a bit more about you and your journey and how you got here because one thing I like to ask people is what kind of thing did you imagine yourself doing when you was at school was it a pilot or was it another thing yeah well it's an interesting one really because actually I started off on pilot ended up doing something else and then eventually came back to it it's not a particularly unique ambition really I think quite a lot of people when they're younger at least one time or another have a thought of potentially being a pilot and it certainly it stuck with me really as a child there were kind of key moments of my life really where I probably have evaluated it a little bit more thoroughly. After school, once I'd finished sixth form, I had a look at what was going on. Didn't really know a lot of information at that point. And again, after finishing university, so I went to the University of Bristol, got a degree in economics and management. And when I was finishing there, I did look into the market at that point. And there'd been a bit of a downturn in the, in the global aviation market as a whole. Still reeling really with some of the effects of September the 11th, that the market was undergoing a bit of contraction mm. and the schemes and investments and training pilots had certainly experienced some of those negative effects. So being fairly risk averse, I decided to actually join one of the uh, well-known accountancy house slash management consultancy company and started a career there, which, which I enjoyed and was, it was very rewarding. And I ended up staying there for about five years. Now, it wasn't until I got to a milestone I was fairly comfortable with in that career that I thought, right, let me have another look at what's going on in the airline industry. There were a lot more kind of green shoots, a lot more positive signs that we were about to experience a bit of an upturn. And I kind of thought, well, actually, it's the right time for where I am in my career now and the conditions are right. If I am going to do it, I'm going to do it now. And it was a very difficult decision to make because there's quite a high amount of investment required. 
and it's not something you can kind of have a look at for a bit, decide don't like it and jump out. So it was something that I really wanted to research well. And what I ultimately came back to was the question, not should I do it, but can I not do it? And I kind of realized at that point that if I hadn't have done it, it would always be something that I'd look back and think, what if? And, and that's a fairly good indicator that it's the right thing to do. Especially if you kept flirting with the idea of it, it's a, a bit of a signal that that is the thing that is tracking. Yeah, exactly. I'd got to a point, I think it was quite an uncomfortable decision to make. And the reason for that, I knew it would be a lot of money. It would mean a couple of years out from working, from earning money. And it would mean quite a big upheaval to a, a lifestyle I got fairly comfortable with. And I had at one point decided, no, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to ignore it. And then my job got a little bit more stressful. There were times where I started to actually reevaluate what was important. And I thought, mm, yeah, I can't ignore it. I have to do it. Yeah. And I need to do that. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. So when you say it isn't as perhaps accessible as you might think, it's not a case of you having qualifications in a traditional format like A-levels or, or a particular degree. Could you just explain to people what kind of training you went through over those years? Yeah, I think that's a really, really big point, especially with this career, that a lot of people have a very romantic view of it. It's, oh, you know, airline pilot, brilliant. It must be fantastic. And the training itself is long and there's some pretty challenging parts of that. The requirements for entering the training would be, I think off the top of my head, say five GCSEs, you know, with kind of English, maths and science. But they do expect a little bit more from you on top of that. So anything that you've done where you've had responsibility, where you've been able to challenge yourself, where you've been able to kind of prove that you can work as a, a professional is going to account for a lot. Yeah, I suppose because it's such a responsibility being in the controls of other people who are sitting on the plane, it's something that you definitely need to evidence that you are that caliber of person. Absolutely. And I think that's something that is at the forefront of the minds of the airline. So when you get through, because it's a lot of the selection for training schools will try and keep in mind the criteria that the airlines are going to look for. But I, I certainly felt when I sat in front of a couple of individuals from the airline who were interviewing me I could really get a feel that it wasn't about the questions that they were asking me it wasn't about the answers to the technical questions it was really them trying to get to know me as a person what makes me tick and actually you could see them probing to understand if you'd had exposure to a professional environment and whether you understood not just how a business works but how you manage competing priorities how you manage stressful situations and you know you add on top of that elements such as the the customer interaction so that they certainly look for that professionalism sometimes i think above a technical answer to a question fantastic i know it's very very close to your world but i interviewed um, callum who's a, an air traffic controller recently <laughs> really randomly yeah. but he actually says something really similar the academic level yes you need a certain level of gcse's again i think it was five a to c uh, at least english and maths in there but it was more about your capability to work under pressure and be problem solving so correct me if i'm wrong but would it be fair to say that you can have all the the academic qualifications but 
if you're not that right fit for the the role if you're not a problem solver if you're a super genius in a certain subject but you can't transfer that into like the problem solving and also that customer interaction that it's not necessarily going to be that easy to get into that particular role yeah i think that's a really good point and exactly the case i mean the academic requirements only tell a, a tiny part of the picture it's so much more about your character your behavior and also perhaps more than in any other industry it's about how you work with people because i've been in um in a career before where we look at building high performing teams but never has the impact of a high performing team been so critical as on the flight deck where an efficient team that works well together is ultimately you know infinitely so much safer than two people that don't gel and if you aren't able to build a rapport, if you aren't able to work with people coherently, then that's going to cause a lot more hurdles than, say, not a stereotypically high educational attainment. Yeah, I can see the value in, in, in having those skills. And especially when you're in the air, your teamwork is going to be such a highly valued skill to have and something that is necessary, isn't it? So yeah, fantastic. So when you talk about your training, is that something that you've done in the UK or, or have you had to go abroad or, or anything like that? Um, well, a bit, of, uh, a bit of both, actually. So the, the way my training was structured, so it covered a period of about 18 months. Now, the first six months of that were ground school. So it's maybe the least interesting part of your life. I actually quite enjoyed the time doing ground school. I was based in Southampton for that. Now, you have 14 exams, which are part of your ATPLs. Now, that's your Air Transport Pilots License. And they're the theory exams that go with that. And these exams cover everything from, say, meteorology to aircraft performance through to mass and balance, how you kind of load and control the aircraft to, say, you know, things like general navigation and that kind of thing. And they're fairly, compre- they're, well, they're very comprehensive topics and you need to really learn them with a very high level of detail. So I suppose that's probably the most academic element of the training. Now, after that, I went out to New Zealand and... I spent about eight, well, I spent eight months in New Zealand and that took me through my foundation flying. So that's when you're, you know, it's kind of your initial flights with a flight instructor. So you're learning the basics of controls and ultimately they take you up through what we call VFR flying, which is visual flight rules. So basically it's looking out the window to fly the plane rather than looking in at the instruments, which is something you do later. And my experience in New Zealand culminated with a commercial pilot's license test. So I had a, a two-hour flight test with an examiner where I had to demonstrate that it's kind of there's six sections to the, the commercial pilot's license. If anyone's more interested, you can go away looking in detail about how that's put together. But it's a fairly intensive test. And that's the last thing that I did in New Zealand before coming back to the UK. And then I went back to Bournemouth and I was in Bournemouth for a period of about two, two and a half months to do what we call the instrument rating. So you're back in the aircraft again. Again, you've got a flight test at the end of that. And if you pass that, then they sign you off for your instrument rating and that goes on to your license. After that, I had a, a short break of about three weeks and went back to what is called the AQC, which is an airline qualification course. Now for that, I was in... Southampton again we were based in a a simulator for these lessons and it was a 737 simulator and you get paired up with a a partner and this is your first time to really kind of experience uh, multi-crew piloting so it's really learning how to operate the flight deck as part of a team and to and to fly safely and work through those airline 
style procedures. And that finished for me at December last year and rounded off my training with the flight school. It must be a strange scenario jumping from you being in there with an instructor to get into the simulator and then start to learn how to have that collaboration, that teamwork with your your co-pilot and yeah no exactly when you look back at the training there's certainly points that stand out more than others and what I probably should have mentioned during the the foundation part of the flying I did out in New Zealand they're taking people who may have actually never flown an aircraft before and you're generally you're checked before you fly to make sure that you're at a level that the instructors deem suitable before they sign you off but the target really is to be flying solo on your, I think it's your 12th or 13th flight. Wow. So it, it feels very quick when you get out there. Yeah. And something that I, I thought of was, you say um, you've got all these these little tests and checks as you go and, and they're looking for you to be up there on your own. Well, not on your own, but <laughs> being capable on your own yeah. to a flight point. Is it like a pass and fail? Do you have like a, a certain number of, of goes, like chances to, to fail something to then redo it? Yes, the way it works. One reason that the training is fairly stressful is because every flight lesson is assessed and the instructor will write up a report and they will call out anything that they feel is not at the standard that it should be. And so really you're trying to make sure that every lesson you've gone over everything from the previous lesson, you've done any any groundwork that you can and you're ready to kind of hit the next one as best you can. Now, throughout the training, whilst every lesson is assessed, there are key points where there are formal external assessments. So at the end of the foundation training and a bit of the advanced stuff that we did in New Zealand, as I said, I took the CPL, which is the Commercial Pilot's Licence Test. Now, that is done by a specific examiner who comes in to test you. The outcome of that, now I said before there are six sections. Now, you can fail one of those sections and have a partial pass. If you fail one of those sections, you get a partial and you can refly. Now, on your second flight, you get to repeat that specific section. And if you pass it, it's fine. If you don't, it becomes a full fail. And like I said, on the initial test, if you fail anything more than one section, that's also a full fail. There is quite a lot of pressure for cadets going through this process because it does go on your record. So when it comes to trying to get the airline jobs at the end of training, the airlines will first look at the people who got a first time pass. They might look at the first series. The first series includes people that passed first time or had a partial pass, which they then made a full pass. And then they will look at people who, say, took two attempts to pass the commercial pilot's license test. And it's exactly the same principle with the IR test, where you've got six sections and fail one, you're partial. If you fail more, you'll fail. And if you pass more, you pass. Wow. Are you aware of that going into the training as well? I think for me, I wasn't, I, I knew roughly where the flight tests would be, but I didn't quite fully understand the format for how they worked as I do now. Uh, but yeah, it does, certainly does add to a bit of stress. A bit like a driving test, but it's, you know, two hours and a bit harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, especially when, if you think about it, a driving test, you can just rebook your test and the, the instructor that you're going with the next time, unless it's the same one, they don't necessarily know the mistakes you made last time. But if it's on your, your record when you go for an actual job, that must be in the back of your mind if you're aware of that. So um, 
Oh yeah, as it should be, given the the nature of the job. But it is very transparent. So the airline that I went for an assessment with recently will have received copies, basically, of all my test reports. So they will see exactly what I did and didn't do. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> I suppose then when you get to actual interview stage, knowing that you got your license, it's then like, oh, what well, they're going to potentially ask me from something I did many many weeks yeah no exactly i was actually asked about my cpl test so my um i was very fortunate with my ir test which was a a first time pass however with my cpl test i failed one section had a partial pass and was fortunately managed to make it a full pass with the refly but the airline did want to know exactly what had gone wrong and uh, even though I, I knew they would have had the paperwork and they'd know the detail fairly well anyway, I did launch into a, a very full and honest disclosure of all the errors that I made. And I suppose like what you were saying about the interview process before, that's probably played into your hands in a good way that you're being that open and honest because people understand that you're going to make mistakes to a certain degree and it's your ability to learn from that and understand what it was that went wrong and your ability to then demonstrate that I did make that mistake but then I was able to correct it in the next one and there you go and like you were saying they already had the report so they knew what was going on so it was probably looking in the whites of your eyes to see how you're going to react in that particular moment. So yeah that's exactly right and one thing that organisations have been working quite hard on and indeed airlines over recent decades is to embed and engender a culture what they call a just culture or a no-blame culture culture which is designed to enable a pilot who does make a mistake to be able to file a safety report to hold their hand up and say look I did this because it's been proven that that is absolutely critical to good effective levels of safety because if you feel that you can put your hand up you're not going to keep quiet about anything and by providing the airline with information where mistakes are being made they might say, oh, actually, you know, five other pilots did that the same day. We need to maybe change our procedures slightly. Mm. And it could flag up training needs and, and all kinds of things. Yes. Yeah, so. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I know you said that it's been there in the back of your minds and that it kept coming back. So you went for it in the end, which was brilliant. But what is it about flying? Is it the idea of how responsible you are for people looking up at that particular role being one of those roles that everyone gives a certain level of respect to and it's a bit prestige? Or is it the being up in the clouds and doing something that not many people do? What's your driving factors and motivation? It's a really interesting one to try and put your finger on, really. So obviously, you know, I had that long, long running interest uh, as a child. But more recently, when I was in the working world for five years, and I, I think as you get a bit older as well, when you get a bit of experience, what, you're, what you want and what your priorities are starts to shift a little. And I was more orientated towards a good work-life balance. And I wanted to find what I did interesting and exciting but also have that work-life balance and depending on who you talk to some people might say actually low-cost airline your work-life balance isn't going to be there but actually you know when you look at the fact that the the roster patterns are say five on four off yes they're quite long days but you look at it as you've effectively doubled your weekend so work-life balance is very important but also wanting to be an expert in something so in my previous role I often found myself being put into different situations, rebranded, relabeled as something else and sent off to a client to do very differing jobs from one week to the next. I think when you want to develop and advance at something, you really need to pick an area that you're going to go into in a bit of a deep dive. If you want to become an expert in something, you need to have something that's your, your bag, if you like. And that's what attracted me to the flying because it's something interesting and you have to learn about it in 
a very high level of detail. And I think any area that you're going to specialize in, you're really going to have to work hard at and you're really going to have to learn in detail. So it has to be something that engages you enough to make you willing to do that. Fantastic. I think that's very wise. And and having had a, a bit of a windy journey myself to doing what I do now, I can totally understand that being involved heavily in retail for a number of years. I too have had that. I might get a little bit higher up the ladder, but what is that really going to achieve? And and like having that ability to specialize in something is definitely a bigger pull for me. And and hopefully other people will hear that and and feel the same. And then perhaps give them some drive to find what it is that drives them to achieve such heights. Excuse the pun. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, there are millions and millions of aviation puns and it's used in other businesses. In my previous job, there were always a lot of kind of plane related innuendo to describe getting something off the ground. How's it going to land? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So apologies if I wheel any more out, I've been trying to resist. So, uh, no, 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 absolutely fine. So obviously getting the job has been a a big moment for yourself and qualifying, but is there any particular moment that you'd say was your proudest moment or your biggest achievement that you can point to? I think the biggest achievement in the training would probably be my first time pass on my IR because I'd really kind of been stressing myself out about it and I'd had a couple of lessons in the weeks leading up to it which had not gone as uh, flawlessly as I might have liked and that's quite an incorrect way of describing them. There were certainly areas of improvement I had to work on and it was quite tight Mm -hmm. the, the time frame for doing that so I was very delighted with my outcome and uh very, very, very proud of that piece of paper that I got handed at the end. Great. When I ask that question, often people think about the the overall thing, but it's quite often I think about little things that I've achieved and, and think that I'm probably more proud of that than the, the overarching qualification or result that you get. It's the little things sometimes that mean more. It's definitely key moments, I think, where you kind of just, when you stop for a minute and you just reflect, that, that count for quite a lot. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. If anyone was thinking about starting out or thinking, I mean, I, I must confess, I watched Top Gun a lot as a kid and I, I love the idea of becoming a, a fighter pilot. <laughs> yeah, Didn't work out for me because I got hay fever and, and didn't even consider it's the same same for me i've got hay fever which ruled me out of the squadron at the university so yeah i feel your pain with that one <laughs> i had asthma and and they kind of give me the green light for that and then they were like but you got have you got hay fever damn damn you pollen yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. but that hasn't affected you you'll not. get a bit less pollen up there though yeah, so, yeah. Unfair. so for anyone thinking about potentially that it could be something for them that they'd want to perhaps dip their toe in without incurring all the the heavy costs and perhaps going for it before they really know is there any skills and pieces of equipment where to start i know there's some quite effective simulators that you can get is there anything that you could suggest for people to to perhaps have a look at there's a few things you can do really you might have seen some websites advertise trial flights for people they can be quite expensive they're generally around 100 pounds i think for a one-hour flight but it is quite a good way of getting you an opportunity to look around an aircraft, to speak to an instructor. They'll talk you through the flight they're going to take you on. It's a very good interactive way of finding out a little bit more. But also what's quite important is you gauge not just whether you think you'll enjoy it and how fun you find the flying, mm. but whether you have a natural aptitude for it. Now, flying was very different to anything I'd ever done before. And... Just having, say, an academic skill set means absolutely nothing when you get into an aircraft. It's a little bit like plate spinning. 
and you have to keep track of about six things at one time and be able to switch between them quite seamlessly. Now, if you can get into an aircraft for an hour, get yourself a child flight, it will just show you the kind of mental processes you'd need to go through. And maybe if you can afford it, I'm very conscious that flying is very expensive to do. If you could afford a few more hours, so maybe five hours of flights, that would give you a pretty good grounding, a pretty good knowledge of whether actually you've got a natural aptitude and you enjoy it. Or you think, mm, actually, it's not quite what I thought and I don't really want to push through. Yes, um, great advice. And as you say, it is an expensive business, but dipping your toe into the water and, and perhaps if you are getting serious about thinking about going for the, the big time, definitely making that small investment just to double check rather than potentially wasting a lot of money if you can gain some insight to realise that actually it's much more involved than, than I originally thought. So yeah, no, great tip. Thank you for that, James. Would you have like a particular biggest challenge, something that was unexpected that you didn't think was going to perhaps present too much of a, a challenge for yourself, like perhaps the multitasking? I imagine, as you were saying, a lot of plates spinning with checking all the equipment and the, on the checklist that you perhaps have to go through. But into the mix of that, you've also got things like air traffic controllers to, to talk about or talk to and the flight crew potentially coming in and communicating with you. Is there anything that was a bit unexpected and was a challenge that you've kind of didn't foresee and overcome? I think the, the hardest part of um, or the challenge that stands out really was probably the hardest part of the training. And for me, that was the, the CPL, the first proper flight test that I'd actually done. Now, that was difficult for a number of reasons. Firstly, I was incredibly stressed in the, the month or so working up to this. To make matters worse, we would had quite extensive weather delays. Now, when you're doing your commercial pilot's license, it's a, a VFR, it's a visual flight rules flight, which means you need to be able to see where you're going. But there's also certain criteria of visibility the weather has to meet. Because we'd had, we were out in New Zealand and we'd had these kind of torrential storms and big heavy rain clouds that had been rolling in for weeks, that kept pushing back my flight. Now, I don't know, you can probably imagine if you're working up to your first flight test, you think, right, it's going to happen this week. You're very stressed. You're literally keeping yourself on the tip. You're, you're very ready to go. And then it's cancelled and it's cancelled and it's cancelled. And when that goes on for two to three weeks, it's really, it began to feel very fatiguing. And on top of that, I did have some friends who I'd been training with who had got in with their tests just before on a good weather day. They were flying out of New Zealand back home. Oh. So that does make you kind of start to feel a bit like I'm stuck in this, this stressful situation waiting for this flight test. The people that I'd normally hang out with, go for a beer with in the evening, one by one, they've left. And it's times like that where I also felt particularly disconnected with my family with my girlfriend who were back in the UK I'd also sacrificed the opportunity of being best man to one of my friend's weddings because it was the same month I had this flight test oh so no all of these factors together just made it probably I think that, that you know well no probably without doubt the hardest part of the training yeah I, c I can only imagine and like you say having all the comforts that you've got used to I know you, obviously it's a bit strange not having your family around but you start making friendships with people and get into a bit of a rhythm and Seeing those guys qualify and, and fly back and, and then being almost there on your own, obviously other people around, but to a degree that being there on your own and knowing that you've, you've given up the opportunity for being best man and, and all <laughs> yeah. these things must have been a real like, am I doing the right thing here? Is this like... Yeah, no, it was def definitely one of those moments where you think, yeah, you know, it does, it makes you stop and think, is it worth it? But then 
much later down the line, you kind of look back and uh, you, you almost feel grateful that you did have those times. Mm. It, it made the good times even better. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, blimey. You've, uh, you've certainly gone through the mill, sir. Um, yeah, that I'd have hated that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. So you chatted about the rosters that you have. Could you talk us through perhaps like a, an average week or an average day, perhaps of, of what kind of responsibilities you might have? I know that you're not necessarily employed as such yet. You've just got your confirmation with that, but have they given you kind of an idea about what a day might entail? Do you, so yeah, it's a good point. I'm, I'm just to make just to stress it. I am kind of guessing a little bit about what it's going to be <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, no worries. And this is really more more due to to you know pilots that I know that work for the airline and, and similar airlines hmm. uh, from from speaking to them. And once I've gone through the training and various other kind of line safety checks and, and the rest of it, my as I said earlier, my roster pattern will be kind of five days on, four days off. Now they're going to be, I would expect, fairly long days, and there will be a number of sectors per day. Probably, say, if it was a short flight, say, you, you know, you're flying to Dublin from, from London, something like that, you could probably expect about four sectors per day, maybe more if it's, if it's quite a short flight. Or if you were, say, flying to Greece, you would probably only expect two sectors. Now, that would, uh, by sector, I mean kind of a, a one-way flight. And so you maybe fly to Greece, come back, and that would be, your, that would be all your duty time used up. Um, so there's quite a lot of time that goes around the flying as well. So you'd obviously go into the airport quite early. You would meet the, the people that will be joining you on the flight deck. You do things like look at the weather, look at your route, look at things called, without going into it in too much detail, there are things called uh, NOTAMs, which are notices to airmen. So you basically look at a computer, you look at your flight route, and if there's things on the route that you should be aware of, maybe there's cranes operating around the, the destination aerodrome, or perhaps there are other disruptive events en route, these will be flagged up and you'll be made aware of them. So you would discuss that with the other flight crew. You'd also be expected to do a, a walk around of the aircraft, make sure it's safe, manage some of the other operational paperwork, speak to the dispatchers, and of course manage the, the flight from the your departure through to your, your destination aerodrome and anything that happens on or after that route fantastic that's a great point about being notified about things like cranes and, and stuff like that for myself being a passenger it's just like oh i'm on the plane now yeah and we're going across lovely but obviously from you being in that control position you do have to look out for random things that that perhaps might cause you any trouble or make sure you're avoiding so so yeah cranes are I totally overlooked that. Do you have to also like file a flight path or, or does that get done? Yeah, good point. Yeah, you do. You file a flight plan. So that it's almost a bit like your contract between you and air traffic control to say what time you're going to be leaving. And sometimes when you are, if you're delayed, for example, I don't know if you've, if you've heard of people talk about missing their slot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So say if you're crossing, if you're on a, a maybe more of a problem with some of the longer haul routes, if you're crossing Europe, you have a air traffic controller expecting you to be in a certain place at a certain time. Now, they can only manage a certain volume of traffic in each of those areas in a, in a single moment. So, you know, if you do miss the time when you should have departed, it may be that there'll be too much traffic in the area you should have been if you'd have at the time that you then want to depart. So you then have to wait until there's suitable capacity for them to manage you later on. Yeah, I've I've, uh, I've heard of that missing your slot. It's usually when I'm on the tarmac and we're ready to take off. Yeah, and <laughs> the, sat there for a bit longer. <laughs> yeah, you, you might get the the pilot come on and say we've just missed our slot, and now I will know exactly what that means. So uh, yeah, thanks for that bit of insight there. Brilliant. So having gone through such a 
a windy path and and a, and a grueling um, trials of especially when you had that flight where you were getting stood down until the weather was good and coming through that at the other end. Have there been any wise words or quotes that you've used to give you some motivation? And yeah, I think when it gets difficult, probably what I what I come back to I'm trying to avoid some cliches now as well. But really, <laughs> what I what I was saying before, it's anything that is ultimately going to be worthwhile is going to take a lot of hard work. So it's finding something worth that hard work. Sometimes you have to stop and take a moment to think, actually, why am I doing this? What's it for? And then that kind of gives you the inspiration or the motivation to look at the obstacles in front of you and kind of keep powering through. Absolutely brilliant. In a similar vein, are there any books or resources that you found really helpful? doesn't necessarily have to be on the subject of being a pilot, but any kind of inspirational books that you can recommend for people to check out or resources that you're aware of? I think one book I read while I was still in my previous job that may have helped speed up the process of me pursuing a pilot career is a book called Skyfaring. And it's by, I'm not sure if I can pronounce his surname properly, but it's like Mark Van Hernicke. It's B-A-N-H-O-E-N. N-A-K-E-R and it's a really nice book it's written by a pilot but it's got a very a kind of poetic vivid way of, of capturing the, the day-to-day realities of flying and it's just quite a nice way of looking at it it kind of makes it you know it brings out some of the magic of what many people associate with flying I think can get lost very easily when it becomes a bit more of a humdrum day-to-day thing that sounds really interesting and well done for pronouncing that name because I, uh, well i had a go it, it may be completely wrong i certainly would do that no justice for for those of the the audience that are, are perhaps running or in the car all of these details will be in the show notes so you need to write on your hand or stop what you're doing they'll be in your podcast app of choice just to refer to those so fantastic thanks for that james one thing that i would ask as well would be if somebody's interested in finding out a little bit more would you suggest any place to go any groups or individuals to follow or to help people who are interested in this world yeah absolutely i mean i don't write one myself but i am aware of a a very good blog written by a guy called george who went through my flight school a couple of classes behind me and his blog you can reach it at www.pilotgeorge.co.uk and it's a very good uh, resource really because he takes you all the way through the training and he will be at a, a very similar stage to where i am shortly so i think it'll be something that uh, will be of, of quite a lot of interest to to people that are looking at, at this career and want to know a little bit more about it and also it's a great blog because it dives in you know there's there's only so much we could cover today and he'll go into things in a bit more detail what's involved in the different lessons what's involved in preparing for the flight test um, so it's a great resource to go away and find out a lot more fantastic that's something again that i'll put in the show notes and and if you are interested in this kind of world then that'll be a, a really useful resource so yeah thanks to george on that one if you could pass my thanks on to him I will do. and yeah anyone who's interested definitely check out his website and his blog on pilotgeorge.co.uk last thing for me then have you got any final messages to take away for the listener just to kind of help motivate them and inspire them to do something that they love? Yeah, everyone will always tell you to do something you enjoy. And that can be a really, really difficult thing to figure out. I mean, I certainly I had this idea in the back of mind for, for a long time, but I still didn't really know if I wanted to do it. And a lot of people can, I think, stress themselves out and overdo it really by just trying to find that thing, trying to find their passion. Because everyone wants to say, oh, yeah, I'm really passionate about this and it's going to be amazing. But but from my perspective with the flying, I don't want it to sound too straightforward and too easy because it's not, you know, a lot of people have an ideal in their head of what it must be like. And actually, even when you're doing something you want to do, it can still be really hard. And there can still be times where you think, hmm, should I have really done this? 
So I suppose my advice is twofold, really. Firstly, relax when you're trying to find out what that thing is that you want to do, where your passion lies. Don't overthink it and just try and see what you're naturally drawn to. I think when you relax and you don't overthink it, you'll pick something up and you'll go, okay, I've been drawn to this and this must be where my interest lies. I'm clearly... I clearly have some predisposition to it. And the second element of that would be when you do find that, you don't expect it to be... People talk about following your dream a lot. That's something I've heard so much since I I left my previous job. It was all great, you know, you're following your dream. And people have this really idealised view of what's involved in that. So I'd say if you find something that you're really passionate about, that's brilliant. But don't be under any illusion that you're not going to find bits very difficult and that you're not going to encounter periods of potentially intense hard work. The only thing you can do is find something, like I said before, you like enough to make those less desirable periods or those times where you are pushing yourself much harder to make them worth it. That is absolutely spot on. And I've heard similar things to that as well. So like when I left my fruit and veg job, when I, I qualified with a degree and, and ended up back at supermarket because it was right on the, the, the banking crisis. And yeah, yeah. I remember speaking to one of my managers and he said, you know, I don't want to hold anyone back. And, you know, I'm glad you're following your dreams and stuff. It is absolutely perfect bit of advice that being that it is hard, even though you're supposedly following your dream or doing what it is that you're passionate about. There's going to be moments and periods where you find it difficult and go through those testing situations and absolutely agree with your mindset on that. You've got to find something that you enjoy, yes, and that gives you that purpose and drive to continue going when it does get difficult. So thank you for that, James. That is absolute perfect. Last thing I'd like to do is just, again, thank you for your time, sir. And uh, hopefully this has provided some inspiration for those of you listening whether you want to be a pilot or not and yeah best of luck in the future and one day perhaps you might be taking me hopefully on a summer holiday somewhere (laughs) yeah no let's uh, let's hope so and uh, yeah thanks very much for having me So how awesome was James? He's such a great guest. I really hope that you've taken as much away from it as I did. So here's what I think this show's takeaways were. The first one is ask yourself if you can afford not to do what it is that you're thinking about. Meaning, if you don't go down this road, if you're going to get to the retirement home, are you going to be the one saying, oh, I wish I'd have given that a go when I had the chance? Remember that often we can take a romantic view about particular jobs. So do a little bit of research because actually sometimes these fabulous looking jobs have a lot more sacrifices than people give them credit for. You need to take responsibility for your own development and go beyond the minimum requirements. You need to be a team player. You need to be honest. And just like James was talking about with that adjust culture, be responsible for your successes and celebrate those. But equally, learn from your failures as well. It is okay to fail. And just like Jade describes in episode two, don't be afraid to fail. It's okay, but just make sure you learn from it. Find your priorities. It is okay if you are happy just to get a job that pays the bills and you've got that good work-life balance. It's absolutely okay to do that. And if that's the route that you want to go down, that is absolutely fine. But if you can find a job that offers you a better work-life balance or perhaps it's something that just doesn't fulfill you, then why don't you push towards doing something that you love? And remember, if it starts to go wrong, don't panic. Stay strong. Remember why you're doing this and find a reason to continue when it gets harder. It can be hard to figure out what your passion is and that is really okay. Try and relax and don't overthink it because sometimes you can accidentally find what it is that you're being drawn to and I know that's absolutely true for myself. Often people talk about following your dreams and this doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of hard work involved and just remember all those successful people that you imagine have put that hard work into. 
Now, thanks for listening to the end of the show. I know that I'm learning loads and hope that you are too. If you like the show, please don't forget to leave a rating or review and follow us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for Get Work Savvy. I hope that your Christmas preparations are going well. Mine are awful. I haven't even started shopping yet, so I need to get on that. But until next week, take care and remember, find a way to get work savvy. Speak to you soon. Thank you.